Our scripture reading this morning is from uh, Exodus chapter 16, the whole thing. So if you want to, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up now, and uh, I'm going to read through the whole thing just to, just to kick us off this morning. Exodus 16. The entire Israelite community departed from Elim and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron went to all the Israelites This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard about your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued. The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening And all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp, and when the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who had gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Moses said to them, No one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning. 
and it bred worms and stank. Therefore Moses was angry with them. They gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord had said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded, and it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet on the, Sabbath, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days' worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named the substance manna. It resembled coriander seed, was white, and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Two quarts of it are to be preserved throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses told Aaron, take a container and put two quarts of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be preserved throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron placed it in before the testimony to be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to an, inhabit, an uninhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. And they used a measure called an omer, which held two quarts. Amen? Amen. All right. So we are, um, we are back this morning in our series that we're calling This Sacred Moment. And, and we have been exploring this, this strange but, but beautiful concept called Sabbath. And, and Sabbath, just throughout the Bible, it, it is not just something that that is, um, uh, that is just this one time or an old thing. It is something that just is continuing throughout the Scripture. It, it bleeds into the pages. And so as we begin to read and see through the lens of Sabbath, it, it starts to shift and change our understanding of how God's design for this, this pattern for this, just begins to be interspersed throughout and woven throughout all of, of biblical history and certainly all of our own history. Now, Sabbath is this word that sounds really spiritual, right? Sabbath. It's not a word we use in our, our typical vocabulary, right? It's a really unusual word in that way. And so because of that, we kind of take Sabbath in our, our cultural understanding, as far as 
our, our usual like church-going experiences, just the Christian walk of everything, that Sabbath is sort of this, it's this churchy thing. We're not totally sure what it means, but it, it, has, it has observances and rituals that, that we are supposed to perform. And, 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 and in many ways, that, that ritualistic observance of Sabbath has sort of molded and formed what we kind of know what it is today, how we, we typically experience it. In fact, if I were to guess, like, like if I were to ask, go and ask the average Christian what it means to remember the Sabbath day, what do you think they would say? Go to church. Yeah, go to church. Like to remember the Sabbath is to attend a church service and maybe don't go to work that day, right? Maybe skip work, go to church, got it, done, right? At some point, this holy moment that was set aside by God became reduced to the church gathering, a weekly observance, and for many of us, just kind of an act of external obedience. It's, it's something you are supposed to do. But what if Sabbath is both more than that and less than that at the same time? I mean, and, and here's what I mean by that. Sabbath literally means to stop. It just means to stop, to cease. And in this, what God is, he's just asking us simply to still our restless hearts, to consider our work complete, and to just rest in him and and him alone. So it's clearly less than how we ritually kind of put it together. It's, 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 not so, it's not so like we have to do this and this and this. It's really just stop doing what you're doing. Stop the work and the rest and just rest in God. There's simplicity to Sabbath. But at the same time, it's also more because Sabbath is not just a day. It's, it's a way of life. Sabbath is not merely just a a pause so that we can regroup and then get back to work. If anything, it's the other way around. It's the end goal. And this is profound to me because I have set my own life around the work of God, around the mission of Jesus. It is, in many ways, it's, it's like my career. It's like the one thing that I do, right? I'm constantly aiming towards the mission and the work of God. I'm trying to do what he has commissioned me to do all the time. And yet, the Bible is clear that that work isn't actually necessarily the goal. Rest is actually the goal. We do not rest in order to work. We work in order to rest. That's a dynamic switch in our minds. We do not rest merely to go work. We work in order to find rest, to bring about completion to our day, and to be satisfied in the work that God has given us to do. 
Rest in order to work is unending, right? There is no end to that. A brief pause in our day so we can keep doing more and pushing more and, and running the race and, and trying to finish all of it. You're just, it's just going to keep happening over and over again relentlessly. But to work in order to rest brings about an end. It brings a close, complete. Sabbath is more than a day. It is a way of being in the world. It is a spirit of restfulness that comes with abiding from living in the presence of the Father all week long. Uh, A.J. Swoboda uh, puts our situation like this. He says, it's not as though we do not love God. We love God deeply. We just do not know how to sit with God anymore. So the next couple of months is this journey toward a, a rest-filled life, and, and the destination is peace with God, where we become a people who practice this sacred art of Shabbat, of stopping and celebrating wholeheartedly. Now, today we are going to talk about how we prepare for Sabbath rest. How do we prepare ourselves and get ready for this seventh day? Now, spoiler alert, the Bible does not give you a clear set of guidelines and rules for how to do this. It's not there. And the Bible doesn't tend to work that way, right? We, sometimes we look at the Bible as sort of, it's all about this like instructions and, and manual and guideline for how to do all these things and then live this life that God's going to be more pleased with. And that's really not, that's not even the point of the Bible. The Bible is not a set of guidelines and instructions for doing things that God's going to be happy with you for. The Bible is the revelation of who God is. It's revealing himself, his heart for you, his desires his goals, how he is and who he is. And so what we find when we read the Bible is that God desires rest for us, and so he is asking us, inviting us to adopt a life centered around a dependency on him. And when we depend on him, we can rest on him. So as we prepare ourselves, the preparation for Sabbath is really a preparation of our hearts to depend on God, to enjoy Sabbath with him. Because when we recover that dependency, we recover our Sabbath. So I want to pray, and then we're going to dig into this very interesting chapter of the Bible. Father, I just... Um, I ask for for clarity of of mind as we 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 explore this, but also just for peace within my own heart. Just knowing that even as I as I look back on my past week, I did not prepare very well for Sabbath rest. My heart is hurried and, and rushed.
when I find myself in some ways almost distracted from the reality of this message. So, Father, I think in some ways it's almost ironic that I am here speaking this out when, when it is utterly in my own weakness that I stand to do this and to share. So, God, we, do, we ask that it would be your words of truth and faithfulness and assurance that we would hear today. even if they come through the mouth of a rushed and hurried and somewhat, somewhat hypocritical heart that is trying to humbly accept this fact in my own life and, and be radically reshaped, even as I push back and struggle to trust in your ways, in your rhythms of this life. It is in all humility that I come and, and speak your words, and we just ask that, Spirit, you would just be moving, and, uh, and we trust in you that your words are going to ring true this morning. Help us to recognize the holiness of this moment, and we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. My prayer is that someday this will be a, I could pray out of strength in this. Like, man, with testimony that God has, has done something to just sort of revitalize and refresh this moment and this, uh, this ability to enjoy Sabbath truly. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's jump into this and, and see where God takes us by the end of it, yeah? yeah. Let's do that. All right, so here's, here's I just want to kind of give you a, uh, and uh, like a kind of a, um, I'm going to jump in. Last week, where did we start? We started in Genesis, right? All the way at the beginning, okay? Uh, right now at the beginning of this, it, 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 the, the whole story of, of human existence and life, God speaks the world, like creation, into existence. And he's creating planets and rivers and stars and trees and plants and animals and, and humans. And, but he also authors time, right? Light. And dark evening and morning, day separated from night. And it's easy for us to overlook time as something that God is the active, intentional creator of. And not only that, but that all of God's creation is intended to, to serve him, to, to reveal his glory and who he is, and, and to point us to him, that even our days are intended to point us to God. The days and nights, time is pointing us to the living God. It's not just his, his created spaces, but it's also his created times, the moments of life. And I, don't, I read this at one point, but did you ever notice how the Bible is, is, is divided into these events of God working? It's timely points of God speaking and moving in history. It's not just spatial things that God's doing, but it's very timely moments. And that's really interesting just because God is the God of time as well as space. And so not only can God claim all space to be his, to, to, um, to point to his goodness and his glory and his, 
his power, but also his created days and months and years point the same way. The seasons of life are, are, are angling us up and toward him which is, is just a powerful thought there. So, and, and, and not only that, like, what, what do you need more than anything to be present with someone or engaged? What is the thing that you need more than anything else? You need time. Man, time is this powerful indicator of, 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 of God's presence with somebody, that God is not just everywhere, but he is also every when in that same idea. So it should come as no surprise that God creates this seventh day, this day of, of perfection and wholeness, this day of culmination and finality and completion. And this reveals to us, as all of God's creation does reveal something about God, it reveals to us his ultimate desire, which is to stop, and to rest and delight in people and in his world and in the goodness of everything he made. The Sabbath day, as God blesses it and makes it holy, is a day that reveals the character and nature of God more than any other day. And we are invited to, to stop moving, cease our busyness and our distractions, and to find a rest with him. And that's right at the beginning. Now, now, fast forward in history. We're going to go about 70 chapters in, into to biblical history now. Fast forward into history. Man really quickly like, gives in to this very misguided idea that, that he may not, in fact, need God to find rest and fulfillment. Maybe he can be a God himself. Maybe he can rule on his own terms and, and judge good and, and evil for himself and, and craft the world in his own image and build and establish his own kingdoms and societies and, yes, even his own rhythms of life that will speak to his own glory and power and worth. So man does what he he takes what is not his to take. He starts in the garden and he, he takes for himself the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. He takes life. He, he does everything in his power to obstruct all of the life and flourishing that God has intended. He, does, he, he even takes the seventh day for himself. People are enslaved and conscripted to work day in and day out without rest as they construct monuments to the greatness of human beings, these, these testimonies to death and abuses. So God intervenes and he, he sets this plan in motion to redeem and restore the good intent of his good world, to, to intervene on man's behalf and show them who he is and why he is worth following. So Yahweh does this. He takes this man named Moses, and he uses him to lead his people out from, from slavery in Egypt and, and into this new land that has been set aside for them. 
And when they go there, they will live as this, this witness to the whole world of, of, his, of, of God's power and redemption just to show them how faithful and gracious and forgiving of a God that he is. So there's this like series of divine acts of, of judgment over, over these human kingdoms that, that make it very clear, ultimately, that it is not a human power that frees these people. It is a divine power that releases them and provides a way of escape. And now that's here where we're going to come to the nation of Israel in chapter 16. So, so God has led them out through the, the, the plagues and, and, then, and then out and then, and then uh, they just finished this, this time where they crossed over, uh, through a sea and then uh, this sea destroys the entire Egyptian army behind them and they have come now to this place called Elim, um, which is kind of like this oasis of rest and refreshment before they head out on this journey. And in chapter 15 says there are 12 springs and 70 date palms. It's just all just enjoyment and it's like paradise for a moment. And so it's here now where the story kind of continues. And very quickly as we find, that happiness does not last very long. Like a month and a half, right? Before they're like, nope, we're done. We're out. This isn't working anymore, right? So, so what I want to do kind of this morning is, is set out kind of this process that's outlined a little bit in Exodus 16 for how we prepare ourselves to live, not just to take Sabbath days, but to actually live a life defined by Sabbath. Because that's really the ultimate goal that God is leading us to. So step one in our, our process, again, like I said, there's not really a clear, like, step one, do this, step two, do this, step three, do this. Now, if you were to talk within Judaism, there actually is a fairly straightforward process for keeping the Sabbath. And that can be helpful and useful, and, and we'll probably share some of those even in a few weeks, just for you to kind of see how, how people throughout history have, have actually gone and practiced Sabbath. And I'll share with you even how some, some uh, pastors that I've read about have, have sought to kind of build in new rhythms and routines for themselves to actually engage in this. But for now, we're just going to kind of see how God kind of lays out a little bit of a process here. And even though this is, 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 is very timely and strategic, I'm not talking to a bunch of people who are now walking through the desert, right? So we might say, oh, this doesn't apply, but, but it does because as God is sharing this, he is bringing into this new life rhythm for a freed people, and this is you, the people who have been freed to walk as God is leading. And if we say we're all about following Jesus, that doesn't just mean we believe in Jesus. That actually means we follow in his ways as he has meant for us to walk. This is the way of Jesus. We walk in the way of Jesus. And this is part of that. So, so step one in this process is to know your limits. Now, the people of Israel, they're going to start their journey, and like, right like that, a month in, the complaining just 
starts, right? Now, now, right before that, they're camped out in this beautiful place, and, and chapter 15 records this really long song of, of victory and glory, and they're just like, Yahweh, you're so amazing, you obliterated those forces, and, and no man can stand against us, and wherever we go, there you are, and you're always going to be there for us, and this is so amazing. And then Monday hits, and like, I'm hungry. When's lunchtime? I wish we were still slaves. I mean, yeah, we would have died, but, it, but at, least, at least we would have had full bellies in, when we died. I mean, that's kind of where they're at. And they're like, instead, you sent us out of here to starve to death. How dare you? Like, they just, man, how quickly that song moves from, like, utter devotion to this God into, like, just utter complaining about what God hasn't done for them yet or lately. So Yahweh tells Moses, he's like, okay, I'm going to feed these people. But as I do, I'm going to test them a little bit. He says, I want to see if they're going to follow my instructions. If we're going to do this, if I'm going to lead them, I need to see how well they follow. So Moses tells the people they can go out and gather as much for themselves as they need to eat, like two quarts per person. And so gather it, and then you eat it, and then you trust that God is going to keep providing for you. So let's, let's jump in at verse 17 right here. So uh, the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Now, did you find that amazing in the story? Like, I, I was like, that's a pretty incredible part. Like, everybody went and gathered, and they gathered as much as they wanted or a little, and when they came back, there was, like, those who gathered a lot, only, they had two quarts. Those who gathered a little, they had two quarts. Like, it was the same for everybody. Everybody had two quarts, exactly as what they needed to eat, and they eat and were satisfied. Now, you can look at that and go like, wow, this is a... That's just another miraculous story of God. And we, we tend to do this sometimes when we're reading the Bible. We read something and we go, wow, what a, what a cool miracle of what God did. And we just, we zoom on right past it, right? And we go like, oh, wow, another act of God. And we zoom on right past it. There's a point, though, to miracles. Miracles are not just to show how amazing God is. A miracle directly points to something about the character and nature of who God is. That's why it's called a sign. It's pointing to a reality about God, about his desires, his, his wants, his who he is. So this is not just a, a human story. And, and, and what we do then is we look at the Bible as like this human story interspersed with divine moments of intervention whenever the human plan goes astray. Well, as long as the human plan... And we do that in our own lives. I've got a human plan, and as long as my human plan goes according to plan, I'm good. But then when things fall short, fall apart, I get in over my head. I need the, the divine genie in a bottle to come and help me out, get me back on track. Save me from my predicament and then get me back where I'm going. Thanks, God. What a miraculous thing you did. I'm going to keep going. Follow my own ways. No. 
This is not man's story with God sprinkled in. This is God's story affecting humans constantly. It is first and foremost a story about Yahweh, this good, gracious, compassionate being, a God who gives, who loves. So what God is saying to Israel here in that moment, what that miracle is pointing out to them to see, is not just, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm a cool uh, magician. Da, 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 da. Two quarts, everybody, right? That's not the point. We miss that when we look at it that way. God is saying to Israel here, this is not about what you think you need. This is about what I know you need. This is not about what you think you need, what they thought they needed. Some gathered a little, some gathered a lot. This is about what I know you need. Everybody had the same, exactly what they needed. The first step as we prepare for a Sabbath lifestyle is to develop a trust in a God who is wiser and more capable than you. Now, it's easy for me to say because, like I said, we're not in the middle of a desert and say, oh, you just need to develop more trust in God, right? It's easy for me to say in this moment, we're in a, we're in a comfortable church. We all fairly eat fairly regularly. It's, it's kind of a normal thing. We don't, we don't need God to rain bread down from heaven and then have, like, the dew evaporate and show frosted flakes out on the ground, right? Like, that, we don't need that to be happening in this moment. Okay, so we're just here in this town. But the, the other side of this, too, is that even as there are, our, our circumstances are different, man, they are also not the same. One of the other things that's going on in this story is that you've got this large, large group of, of people who are in the same boat together. They're all wandering through the desert, hungry, same circumstances. In this moment, there's no rich or poor, strong or weak. All are in need to be fed. Now, now, I bring that in to say, I'm speaking this, this need to depend and develop a trust in God when there are some of us here who have more than enough. And there are some of us who are barely struggling to get by, one day at a time. Provision means different things for everyone. And some of you will get this right away because you work and work and, and, and gather and gather and, and you need to learn how to stop and allow rest. So dependency on God is going to be about trusting that he's going to give you everything. You don't need to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. That may not be the norm. There are some of you who are going to have fixed incomes or no income, and, and constant working is not physical. It's an emotional toll day in and day out. It's this ever-present concern that, that what if this is the day that I can't feed my children or myself? You're not a slave to your desires. You're just trying to survive. And yet, I, I still believe that whatever your case may be, 
God is asking for the same thing. He's still asking for you to depend on him, to to trust in him. The process of finding rest is still the same. God knows what you need, and he's asking you to listen to him and to learn from him and to trust him. So, so in the story, as it continues, God, God allows them this process of gathering and, and receiving. And, and the first test comes in, and he says, Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it, it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. So I, I love this. It's like, Moses, it's like God built in like a fail-safe into the manna, like it has a shelf life of one day. And that's kind of in the test, is like, I will give you this food. It only lasts one day. You can have it. He provides exactly for his people exactly what they need for the day that they need it. No more, no less. And it's when the people think that they know better and are rationing out their provisions on their own terms They lose more than they gain. And so what this comes down to, I think, is is this, this lack of trust is often born out of a failure to understand our limits. Or or maybe it's knowing our limits all too all too well, and yet doing everything we can to somehow overcome them on our own. We are all limited human beings. We all push against the boundaries of human existence in some way. Now, for for some, you might be limited by your body, right? And, and, And when I say some, I mean all of us. We're all limited by our bodies. You can only be in one place at one time, right? None of us have mastered the art of of, of omnipresence, right? It's not something we're good at yet. We haven't mastered that one. You are limited by your mind. No matter how much you read or study, you will not know everything. You are limited by ability, parenting, painting, business, speaking, building, fixing. You will hit a wall of, at some point, you will rise to the level of, like to the highest level of your incompetency. It will hit there at some point. Someone will be better for you than you, and no one can do everything. You might be limited by your personality. There's only so many relationships that you can handle, so much stimulus you can absorb, so much capacity to to carry responsibility or, or to maintain stress levels or to lead people. At some point, whether, whether extroverted, introverted, somewhere in between, your emotional wiring will hinder your capacity. You'll be limited by your, your family, your, your history family, right? Some of us are born with, uh, like some will get uh, at, at birth, some, some receive silver spoons, and others get kicked in the ankle, right? Like it, it's not always the same. Generational wealth or generational poverty, born into faith or born outside of it. Some of our families will set some limits on us before we even leave the womb. You're limited by education and careers. 
A lack of high school, uh, a high school diploma, that's a limitation. An Ivy League degree, that's a limitation. Because in both capacities, you're limited to what the expectations and what you can do with it and how you get out of it and, and what you're locked into. So, so regardless of that, you're still stuck in these ways. You will be locked into some work that will push your emotional or physical boundaries. And you're even limited by your responsibilities. So do you have kids? If you have kids, you have limits. Do you have four kids? You have a lot of limits. Do you have a job? You have limits. There's only so much other time you have in between. Do you have parents who are dying? You have limits. Your your responsibilities will determine what you can and cannot do, and they restrict any opportunities that you might have to do to do the thing that you think you need to do, but you can't do. Does that make sense? We all have things that limit us. So, but our response tends to be when we encounter limits is to somehow work out a way in our brains to get past it, to bypass the limiters, right? When I, uh, when I first uh, was, was living here and we, we were close by, I, I bought a, a 50cc scooter because it was really cheap on gas. And I'm like, this is going to be great. I can get to go wherever I want. I can drive anywhere. And uh, what I didn't know was that 50 cc's is not very much for a bike of any kind. It's really slow. You, you trade something when you're getting gas mileage. Um, and, uh, and so this thing maxed out at 25 miles an hour. Which was great if I needed to go like, this far, but if I needed to go to Reading, whew, it's like 45 minutes, something like that. And so, um, and so when I went back to the, guy, the guys, I'm like, man, I don't know if I realized how slow this thing was. And they're like, well, you know, there's a governor on this, right? We can take that off for you. All right. So they took off my governor, and then I went 35 miles an hour. <laughs> and I lost 20 miles per gallon in the process. So... I gained speed and, and, and efficiency. Well, efficiency. I got there faster. I lost money that would pay a lot more for gas in the trade-off. So in the reality, did I, and what did I buy the thing for? Save money on gas. So again, we have these, these governors, these limitations on our life that are actually meant to help provide health and to maximize our, our, our well-being and our hope, and yet our tendency is to do what we can to do to bypass the governors and the limiters and figure out some way to make this last more, to get more, to gather more, to, to keep ourselves wherever we think we need to do and make the best decisions about our own lives. And yet what we tend to do is is when we bypass those limits, we end up causing more harm than good in the end. We all have things that limit us, but our response should not be to ignore or to hate them, but actually we're supposed to lean into our limits. Not just to accept them, but to to like say, God made me with limits. These might be a gift. 
to be used by him exactly as he has created me to be. The Sabbath life is, it's something that you need to think about, but it shouldn't be something that you struggle with. Here's what I mean by that. If you can't get everything done in six days, you are probably doing too much. The, question, the answer isn't more time. It's less things. Preaching to myself right now. If you are feeling overwhelmed and overburdened, and you're like, I can't get this Sabbath thing figured out because day six comes, I've still got too much. I'm rushing through, and then day seven comes, and I'm not, in, I'm not there yet. It means you're not, it means the rhythm of life. Like, here's what, here's what I mean by all of this. If you want to Sabbath, if you want to experience Sabbath, it starts on day one, not on day seven. You don't do six days of rush, rush, work, work, and then day seven, you're like, and now I'm going to try and experience all that Sabbath is. No. It starts by establishing a new a new set of boundaries and living within limits so that days one through six are exactly as God meant. If you're living within your limits, day seven will be like exactly as God meant for it to be. All right. Step one, know your limits. Step two, find your rhythm. Find your rhythm. All right. Verse 21. They gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And, and he told them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So, so Israel is now committing to this rhythm of work and rest. And so here are kind of the, the, the instructions. Days one through five. Here's what you do. Work. You work. You walk around. You find what you need. You help out your family. And hey, we're journeying towards something. So we're still walking and, and going to this, this promised land. So continue to journey. Continue to walk forward. Continue to work. Gather also. Go and get what you need. You're going to have exactly what you need. So work, gather it up, eat it, live, and then you'll repeat the next day. Work, gather, repeat. Five days. Now day six. Keep working. But this is also a double gather day. It's about providing food for yourself, but it's also preparing to rest in the day to come. So finish up your projects, plan your meals, set it aside, and then leave it alone. And day, day seven, complete rest. And by complete rest, he means this is just a total observance of this sacred set-apart day to pray and to worship and enjoy your provisions. Stop and savor. I think what God's doing here is he is trying to undo this, 
this curse that man brought about himself in Genesis 3. Because if you remember in Genesis 3, when man takes what is not his to take, one of the curses is, is that he gives to man is he says, curse is the ground because of you. You're going to be working and toiling until you die. You're going to be wrestling with the ground. And it's not going to be going well for you. You're constantly going to be toiling over and over again. And, and you came from dust, dust shall you return. The only rest that you will have is so that you can continue to work. But now... What God's kind of showing us in this, in this sign is to say, instead of resting so that you can work, you work so that you can rest. Now, unless your job today is as a manna collector or a sojourner, I'm guessing it's not, your routine will look different from the average Israelite. And, but that's not the point, Right? Neither is it the point where you have to act, like rest on a specific day, all right? Now, for some of us, again, that's going to look different. As a pastor, Sundays are incredibly busy for me. They're not a great day for me to experience Sabbath sometimes. Perhaps they should. And, and, and even as we're, we're praying and looking over how, how church is supposed to look, even how a pastor works and prepares and and plans and goes about his time. I was looking at some different pastors, and they say, well, Friday is their Sabbath, or Saturday is their Sabbath, or Monday is their Sabbath. And I'm like, I, I think I can see that, and, and maybe in my current season, maybe that's something for me to look at doing. But I'm also looking at this, and I'm going, is the reason why we do this is because I have built-in routines to do church a certain way that actually, like, take me away from this God-ordained version of Sabbath that's meant to be experienced in a community together. And I'm actually limiting what God might do if I were to actually have a rhythm of rest that allowed me to enjoy the seventh day with everyone else. That's something I'm working through right now. Uh, it might mean a radical reshifting of how we even do things together as a church, as a, as a pastor, how I prepare, even the expectations that I set mostly upon myself, but maybe are also implied expectations of how a pastor is supposed to do and operate and think through things. But what if it was set up to where, even for shepherds, our Sundays were also equally days of rest that we got to enjoy and celebrate and dwell in the same way? Those are good what-if questions. The concept overall, though, is this. Whatever the day may be, and there's reasons why we practice Sunday, and we'll share about that in a few weeks from now, but, but whatever the day is, the goal here about Sabbath is to center your life's work around anticipation and celebration. The goal of this work is to anticipate your season of rest. 
Not to anticipate more work. We don't rest so that we can work. We work so that we can rest. Now, let me, let me, I'll give you, I want to provide you kind of an illustration example for really what this is all about. Um, and I will say here, um, the, the pastor theologian Eugene Peterson um, says, beware of, of confusing the Sabbath with a day off. And he says, and this is his language, not mine. He says, a day off is a bastard Sabbath. It's the illegitimate child of Sabbath and Western civilization. Rather than creating a sacred moment, we have merged sacred moment and our constant thirst for work and production and, and all of this stuff, and it becomes merely a day off from working not a celebration of life. Man. Okay, here's this illustration example that I was just going to say. Um, all right, my family just celebrated Christmas together. We just celebrated Christmas. And over time, we have built up a routine for preparing for Christmas. And here's what this looks like. Uh, we decorate our house just after Thanksgiving, Probably going to look really similar to what you do, right? We decorate our house right, right after Thanksgiving. We shop for Christmas presents as early as possible. We bake goods uh, weeks ahead. We, we buy uh, ingredients for Christmas meals a week before. We start playing Christmas music in June. Um, it's, what, and, and so why are we doing all of this? Why do we, why do we set, like, we set to work a month or months before the actual day of Christmas, for one day of, of celebration, for holiday. Why do we do that? We do that so that when Christmas Day comes, we can sit and experience this celebration together. If I were to look over the entirety of a year, I would say that Christmas Day is like my best, like when I, if I have ever done Sabbath well, it's that day. It's probably the only day that I do Sabbath well is, is Christmas Day. Because Christmas Day comes and I wake up early and I make coffee and I sit and I breathe. No technology. No, no, no chaos. No tasks ahead of me for the morning. I'm sitting. Presents are done. Lights are on. The kids are still in their rooms. They're awake. They've been awake for like five hours. But we have a rule in our house. You don't get to come out until dad finishes his first cup of coffee. So on Christmas Day, only Christmas Day that this, does this actually happen. So they're just bouncing in their room like, I've got to get out. And I'm like, this is good. This is, this is Christmas morning. And then the kids finally, they break out of the rooms and they come and then they, but like, we, we were really careful, like, sit down. Everybody sit down carefully on the couch. And we all come. We take pictures slowly. And we fill in the moment of Christmas Day. It's driving them nuts, but I love it so much. I'm not doing it to hurt them. I'm doing it to, to remind them. Um, and, then we, and then we sit down and we take turns opening gifts and we just enjoy one another delighting in the gift one at a time. 
And then we eat and we enjoy family time and we play and we rest. And the day is full, but it's not frantic. It's maybe one of the best days of the year for me and for many people. And why is that the case? Because we prepare. We prepare for it. We set aside an entire month to work and gather. And and Christmas season, for many of us, it's a whole different routine than than what we normally practice the rest of the year, built around this one day of complete rest. Now, here's the kicker. What God is inviting you into is to take a holiday every single week, 52 Christmases a year. That's what he's asking you, though. That really is. He's asking for 52 Christmases a year. Work, gather, prepare, celebrate. And how you work the first six days of the week will determine the quality of rest that you get and will impact your ability to celebrate and worship and rest. It's not last minute. It's not hurried. It's not pressured. How you work the first six days of the week will determine the state of the rest, the complete rest that you receive on the seventh day. So does, does, um, is, that, is that what it is for you? Or is, it, is, is, is that just, are we just expended and we're left with just whatever's left over? On Sunday. It's all we have left. Develop a rhythm. Find a, find a new rhythm. Know your limits. Find a new rhythm. And then step three, practice makes perfect. Now Moses is going to uh, give these instructions for the Sabbath, and he says... Listen, okay, you gathered some stuff before, so eat today. This is seventh day. You, you, you gathered double portion before, so today, eat. You're not going to find anything more than just rest today. And so this is another test because Israel messes up again, and, and here's what happens. He says, yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. What? Then Yahweh said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. That's important. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. They literally Shabbat, they Sabbathed on the seventh. (coughs) Now again, what happens here? Almost kind of the same thing before, but now in a different, a different thing. Last time when they failed the test, they, they, they gathered and they took, and because they didn't trust that maybe there would be food the next day for them, they held on to it and tried to ration it out, portion it through, supersede their limits. This time, God says, you've got double portions, you've got everything you need, no, more, no food the next day, and yet what happens? They try again. They get out and they try to gather food, even if there wasn't any, but they still try. Now, I was talking to TJ earlier, and we were, we were asking this question, like, what is the motivation behind 
like that, that caused these people to, to go and to work and to gather and not to rest, even though it clearly says Yahweh is going to give them a double portion to eat and be filled and be satisfied. So we were like, well, maybe it's like desire or greed. Like, you know, we just want what we want and when we want it, right? And, and that's certainly true. We have this, this utter desire sometimes for eternal security and, and satisfaction and safety and fulfillment. And these desires that we have do drive us forward and, and, and cause us to make all the decisions that we make often. Why do you do this? I really wanted it. I needed it. It's my appetite more than my hunger, but I had to go get it. We don't want day to day. We want finality. We want forever, and we want it now, right? So what if it was desire and greed that caused them to go? And, and, and that's, like I said, that's certainly true, but, but TJ brought up this point, and I, I think it's absolutely spot on. Why test these people? Why test them? What is the real heart behind this Sabbath test as it relates to humans and God. Was God doing it to expose feelings of desire and greed? No. I mean, he knew that they had that. But that's not why he tested them. He tested them because it's about trust. Do I actually trust that God is going to keep providing for me? I mean, yeah, yesterday worked out. He did feed me then. And today worked out. He, he gave me what I needed. What about tomorrow? Or the next day? God gave me what I needed so that I can rest on Sunday, but what about Monday? What if I need to work on Sunday so that I will have what I need on Monday? Because what if God stops on Sunday, but that means he's also stopping where he won't come on Monday. So I got to go get stuff on Sunday so that in case he doesn't show up on Monday, then I will have food so he won't get me on Monday. What's going on there? The people hoard their food just in case Yahweh doesn't come through for them the next time around. And then the people try to gather extra and more just in case Yahweh doesn't resume provisions when the next week starts again. It's a test of trust. Now bear this in mind. What's the end of the story say? The Israelites do this over and over again, day in and day out, week after week, for how long? Forty years. It's not like two months. Forty years. There's a reason why God tests them about trust. I'm going to do this. Will you trust me in this? Because guess what? It's not getting better anytime soon. It's going to be a long road of perseverance and continuing to trust. And if you can't trust me now, Will it continue for 40 years? The same routine, nothing but manna and quail. God gave them this practice in order to help them become 
more whole. And when I say perfect, I don't mean like us morally assentive. I mean perfect in the, in the Hebrew word perfect, which means wholeness. Our practice of doing these things contributes to our wholehearted movement towards life with God. And now here's what I mean by that. God says to Israel this, and he says, he says, I have given you the Sabbath. I have given you the Sabbath. Now before that, he also says the Sabbath is unto Yahweh, unto the Lord. But now look at the difference between those two things. The Sabbath is unto the Lord, but it is for man. It is unto the Lord. It is for man. What that means is, is that when the like what the Sabbath's aim is for you, is it brings you rest and satisfaction and revitalizes you. It restores your soul. And that life brings you closer to the presence of God. The more life and refreshment that you find in resting in him, the nearer you you become to his presence, the more you are drawn into his presence. Because you're not just satisfied in yourself, you're satisfied in him. A Sabbath unto the Lord is a Sabbath that brings you nearer to the Lord. A Sabbath that is for you is something that, it's this circular thing that God brings an order of life and rhythm into us that restores us and brings us more into line with what God always intended for us. And since God always intended for us to be worshipful creatures that go to him, as he restores the order of our lives to find rest and hope and refreshment, we find greater and deeper relationship with the Father as a result. Beautiful thing that he offers to us. Yes. 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 You can go, you can doze off. That's fine. (laughs) I want you to know, I'll say this, because we're all family here. Uh, You would not be the first. And, I, and, and that being said, I am totally okay with it because uh, when I first started preaching and I remember the, like the first time somebody fell asleep, I'm like, I am not, I must be boring him. I'm not exciting enough. I'm not energetic enough. Uh, I'm, I, I need to be more engaging, more compelling, whatever it was. And then I realized, maybe you're just tired. Maybe you just need rest. It's warm in here. And that's okay. So now, so now what I do when I see someone sleeping, I'm like, man, I hope that's a really great rest for you. <laughs> because that's what God gave you at this moment. He didn't give you the, the op, like, if, if God needs you to have rest in this moment, and I hope this is the most refreshing time you get. We were talking about that this morning, even in our preparation for our, 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 
our time this morning and just talking about how there have been times in my life where Sunday morning hits and I'm like, I'm, I'm too tired to go to church. Like, church just sounds exhausting to me right now. Like, I'm not even doing it. I'm just attending. I'm just sitting down in the rows, and I'm like, I can't do this. I've got to get ready. I've got to put on, be nice. I've got to be presentable. I've got to not be rude. Um, I have to sit and, like, do all the stuff and all the things and, be like, all these people that I don't want to be, like, it's too many people. I just want to be alone. All this sort of stuff. And I find I'm like, I'm too tired to go to church. There are two things that, that happen that, that need to happen, and, and this is, I'm not, this isn't. You guys got the process of preparing, right? Okay. We're gonna, we'll finish out this way. We'll finish out this way, that again, God is just angling for us to have a heart of rest and Sabbath. Um, that totally threw me off. Yes, I don't want to be in church. I'm in bed. I'm, I'm in the covers, and I'm like, I don't want to go to church. I'm too exhausted to even think. Like, church itself, the concept of church exhausts me just thinking about it. There are two things that come with that. One, are my rhythms, is my preparation for the morning, does that impact how I feel about my readiness to come and engage and to be part of God's family? In other words, have I lost sight of what Sabbath is and so my, my pushing past limits or whatever during the first six days of the week impacting my ability to truly experience and celebrate day seven. That's, that's part one. So on an individual level, I have to look to myself. On a church-wide level, I have to ask this question. Have we contributed to church being a place of exhaustion? When you come to church, it tires you out because we expect things from you. We expect you to dress a certain way, act a certain way, present yourself in a certain way, do things, serve in different places, have lots and lots of responsibilities over the, over the, the course of the morning and just wear yourself out trying to be there. But what if Sabbath, like what if, what if Sunday morning wasn't like the obligation that was just as exhausting as everything else that you have to do? But what if, you're, what if this was your manucha, your safe space of rest? You're able to come and find refreshment, revitalization, and restoration. You're satisfied in God in his time, and, and this is the most restful place you can possibly think of. To wake up on Sunday morning and go, that week was tough. I can't wait to come to church and find my church community and find rest there because I'm going to experience the presence of God and in the presence of God I find rest. And man, to be with my friends who are experiencing that together and we are satisfied together and we celebrate together and we enjoy that as a community, what a restful experience that would be. And I've been thinking about that recently of going... Can we recapture this sacred moment in our time of worship together as well as in our own lives and our preparations? It's a community effort. It's not one that's done alone. It's, it's the entire uh, community of our, of our church being actively working towards this, 
we work in order to rest. So uh, it's going to take a, it's, like I said, it's going to take a group uh, moving in this direction together to experience Sabbath the way God has intended for it to be. So I invite you to this process even as I continue to learn and repent of the areas where I have fallen short um, as we do that. I'm going to pray. And uh, do you want to sing another song? How are you guys doing? I'm going to pray and then we're going to go to lunch. Father, we just thank you for, um, God, just how you're continuing to speak to us in this, in, this, in this understanding, in this mode, bringing us to our knees even as we, we wrestle through these concepts of, of how we're doing. And, and is it even okay to, to, to even be restful in church? Man, I'm so thankful that you cry out a resounding yes in your word. The rest is not only permissible, it's the goal. It's what you're looking for and longing for. I ask that you would bind these restless hearts together and usher them into your presence where we would find rest in you. We ask that we would just continue to learn, practice, prepare, and just see what you're going to do as a result. Help us to trust in you. We are limited creatures who don't always know what we're doing. Even though we say we do, we swear that we know what we're doing, and we don't. May we be a church that follows in the way of your Son, a way that leads to life and refreshment and, and into your presence where we can be satisfied in you. Help us, Father, as we go to continue to trust, to seek after you, to be humble when we recognize that you were trying to change us and transform us into something different, something better. We thank you for that gift. We worship you and we praise you and we thank you in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. Go home. Rest. <laughs>